We are going to be in our series again called The Imperfect Church. Uh, it has words for us from 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to spend our time looking at today. 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to pri- primarily be in verses 10 to 17 today. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17. So I'm going to ask Sean Barefoot to come and read for us this morning. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So if you've ever owned a home, you know it's a little more than you bargained for at the beginning. There's always something to be done. There's always something to be fixed. One day you notice something in your house that needs needs a little touching up, and maybe you think you need to just uh, a little patch or reinforce something, a little paint, a little drywall, a few screws, and everything will be okay. And imagine if that's the scenario and you have a friend come over, uh, a friend come over who knows a good bit about houses. Maybe they're a contractor, maybe they're an engineer, and as they look and see what's going on with your house, you, it comes up in conversation. They realize you don't just have a touch-up job here you need to do. You, you've, you know you've got problems, right? You know you've got something serious that you're dealing with, and, and this escaped your knowledge. You didn't have, you couldn't see below the surface, but they could see something. They could see something going on was not cosmetic, but structural, and it could be very serious. All over the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with things that may appear a little bit cosmetic, as far as what's going on in the church, maybe a, a, a few struggles that they have. But Paul, in his discernment, knows more's going on than just something on the surface. There's some deep things, deep problems, deep-seated issues that are going on with this church at Corinth. And so he speaks to them and he appeals to them in verse 10 that Sean read earlier. He says, I appeal to you brothers, or I appeal to you fellow Christians, brothers and sisters. He's He says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is not just appealing on on his own name, but he is invoking the name of Jesus, the authority that Jesus would have over any church. So that's a, a, a strong name. In his name, I am appealing to you. I'm urging you that all of you agree. It's hard to imagine, but churches don't always agree about everything. That there's differences of opinion, and he, he's pointing that out. I, I am urging you, I'm appealing to you that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind, that you be united in the same 
judgment. Why does he have to make that appeal? Because in verse 11 he says, it's been reported to me by the the people of Chloe or, or Chloe's household, someone there that there's actually quarreling. There's some dissension among you, my brothers. It's clear that some people in the church at Corinth, and we don't know how big the church was. Frankly, I'm not sure it matters. There were people that were not agreeing. It's clear some people were ready to divide and splinter. Oh, maybe they would even attend the same worship services, but they would kind of identify a little bit differently than other people, even within the fellowship. People were seeing things a little bit differently. And the fact that he says there's quarreling means it started to get a little emotional. Like something has gotten heated up. There's some argument going on. It's tempting when you read that to say, well, Paul, I mean, welcome to the real world. This is what happens when people get together. This is what happens at church. People don't always agree. People don't always see, see things the same way. Is it that really big of a deal? You tell them like, okay, occasionally we've got to say, we've got to get along here and we need a, you know, maybe a pastoral pep talk. They're like, come on, come on, guys. We, 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 let's, let's like set aside some differences here and, and really kind of quit arguing. I mean, if, if, if you're a parent of more than one kid, Quit arguing? Like that, that's, that's part of like standard fare, right? It wasn't in my home because me and my sisters, we never argued. But I've heard out there that this is the way it goes at times, right? So you just, you know, get in line, quit arguing, and then isn't that enough? But Paul, Paul's going to take four chapters to deal with this issue of divisions and quarrelings. Is that like taking a sledgehammer to kill a fly or something? I mean, what, why on earth bring all that to bear when you could just say, hey, someone help these people get along. He did that in another place. Why did he not do it here? Is it a high-level emergency? But what if you knew something was a little bit deeper than a couple people arguing? What if you knew, what if you could discern below the surface that something more structural with their faith was going on? that actually could potentially wreak havoc. Well, then you press in. You don't just you know, pull out a paintbrush and put a, a touch of paint on it and go on your way. Then you, you deal with some things in a more serious way. And I think that's what was going on. Paul, was, Paul realized that a lot of Corinth, a lot of the culture was seeping into the church. So the church was looking more like the world than they were like Jesus in some very, very important areas. And he says, what I mean is, this is, the way you're, this is the way you're talking, church. You're talking like, I follow Paul. And then you got another group saying, no, I, I follow Apollos. And you got another group, I follow Cephas or Peter. And then you've got another group, and there's always debate on what this fourth group means. Like, is this, is this a good thing that they say, well, we follow Christ? Or could it be, and I think it's more likely, something where they go, we have the direct access to God. Our, our group does. These other people follow the other people. We follow Jesus. And you know you could play that card in a super spiritual way. We're better than everybody else. It's just me and Jesus, not like those other guys. So whatever it was, Paul says, we, we've, got, 
an issue here. You're breathing in the air of the culture. Why do I say that so much like the culture? Because if you study any ancient history, particularly not just of the ancient world, but of Corinth, particularly of 50 to 70 AD, you will, you'll be able to tell something very significant going on in Corinth. The way the city worked is there were cultural influencers. There were people that were speakers and orators. There were people that, in our day, they might have a TED Talk with uh, 10 million views. They would have some, some weight in our culture. They would be paid attention to. When they spoke, people would listen. And not only would they speak, but they would gain followers, almost like a, an apprentice. And, and these orators, these people in Corinth would... Uh, not, not religious. They would, they would speak of philosophy. This is the way the world should work. And, and someone would say, I want to I hook my wagon to you. I, I want to listen. I, I want to be your disciple. I want to go to your school. I want to be trained by you. I want to be the next generation furthering your philosophy. They would imitate this person, words and actions. They would kind of see themselves as we're a part of a tribe. And, and then another speaker comes in, and that's a rival tribe. And then another speaker would come into Corinth, and that would be another one. It, think of uh, rivalries like sports or politics, where the goal is to say, like, you know, our group, we're the powerful ones around here, and you're just weak. We're the, we're the intelligent ones around here, and you guys all are dummies. You don't see things like we see them. If you could be part of our group, but, but you're not. And so there would be these rivalries, not even just with the leaders, but with the followers. This is what was going on in Corinth, and this is what was taking shape in the church. They were importing way too much of what was going on in Corinth. They walk the streets, they hear the talk, they, they consume the media. And, and over time, the church looked way too much like the city. Instead of being a distinct witness, the church was saying, we're of the Paul group, not me. I'm not. I'm of the Peter group. I'm not. I just follow Christ. Paul discerned a high alert problem, and he addresses it in the next verses. Even next week, we're going to talk about how this was reflecting, do they really have confidence in Jesus and his message or not? But today, I really do want to dial in on he is asking them to think through, where is your allegiance? Who are you loyal to? Is it really Jesus or is it some sort of group? Dividing is a problem, and I think Paul would acknowledge that. But what's a greater threat is if you go down the road of identifying, belonging, and following or setting yourself apart from others with someone that, that's not our Lord feeling loyalty to a subgroup. When that becomes your identity, even in church, when we identify more because we like, we like to be a part of the in-group that seems like to be in the know, in, in the decision-making group, or when we like to be in the group that's looked at as the smart people or the wise people, the intelligent people, when that becomes a priority, it's not the way of Jesus. We know it's not the way of Jesus because Paul asks questions, three of them, in verse 13, pretty rapidly. Look, look at them. He has in verse 13, is Christ divided? Or was Paul crucified for you? You're a, you're a, you belong to Paul, okay. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I'd like for us to even settle in on these questions and ask them in a little bit different way. Are, 
Are things spiritually sound in our lives, or would there be reason for some concerns? So one way we could ask that first question is this, do you think and do you live as if Jesus brings people together? So remember, the question he asks is, is Christ divided? I think he's asking, are you thinking and are you living in such a way that reflects you really do believe Jesus brings people together, or are you living and thinking as if Jesus tears his people apart? He says, this is not the way it works. Christ brings his people together. I think the, a, a comparison may be helpful here. So if you think of the difference between a puzzle or a doll, or for guys, action figures, right, which are kind of dolls for guys. If you think of the difference between those, you have a lone puzzle piece, and nothing is disturbing about that puzzle piece. It is one of 100, it is one of 200, one of 500. You know what's going on with that puzzle piece. You expect it to be on its own, yet you know it was designed to come together, work on something greater. It's a little bit different when you see an action figure or a doll that is missing a leg or is missing a head or has three fingers. There's something else where you go, not in the way it's supposed to be. You see kind of a random leg somewhere. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's not a pretty picture. Toys, you're like, well, we got to fix this or like get rid of the doll. This, this, we don't need this. This is kind of disturbing to have a decapitated doll laying around the house. It's different because we recognize with the, a body, it's supposed to be joined together. It has life when it's joined together, not individually. And he says Christ is not divided. I mean, you, you can't just like separate out part of the body of Christ. It's together. It's joined. Of course you have friends. Of course you have people you like to be with. Of course you have mutual things that you share in common. Of course you do. But when we begin to divide and sketch out factions in our mind, we ought to check ourselves because greater unity is meant to be found in Jesus than any tribal identity. I, a couple weeks ago, I was out at Lum's Pond, where we'll be in a few hours. In the particular area, I noticed there was a picnic going on, and the picnic was uh, a family reunion. I knew that because they all had t-shirts. It said, you know, that's exactly, I don't remember the name of the family, but they were all clearly identified. We're part of this biological family or an extended family. And then I saw another group that was playing cricket, and that's always fascinating to me to watch. So watch that for a few moments, and they kind of had their group. They're all kind of playing cricket together, and we have the, the family picnic. And, and I thought, this is the difference between how we're going to go out, because we don't share biology in common. We come from different families. We're not just gathered to, to play sports, although I'm sure some sports will be played. What, what is holding us together here? It's something greater. It's that Christ can't be divided. There's something that brings us together that's far beyond any, any sport, far beyond a t-shirt that says, I'm at this family reunion. It's a warning to us. I could, I could be too much like the world instead of like Christ. Am I regularly finding... This, this is a question I ask myself. Am I regularly finding reasons as to why this person who would claim to be a Christian, who would claim to be under the lordship of Jesus, why I'm really not quite like them. I'm not so much like them. I'm more a part of this group, and they're not like me. Inevitably, when I'm saying I'm not like them, and I'm not like them, and I'm not like them, but we are all kind of together in this, what I'm doing, what I'm doing there is thinking I'm better, I'm wiser, I'm more nuanced, 
I'm more balanced. I'm more educated. I'm more informed. And Paul will have none of it. Do you see how that's just a fast track to superiority and pride? What good grows where there's pride? No good. It's easy to nurture these feelings. It's easy to, even mentally, we wouldn't act on them, but we might mentally exclude, I'm not like them, I'm not like them, but I am part of this group. If I were played a soundtrack of my last month, would it include places where I separate and elevate myself above other people? Other Christians? Would it be embarrassing if that soundtrack were played for you today? Here's another, here's another place where Curtis like made a, an offhand comment, kind of separated himself out as a little bit different and a little bit better than everybody else. You see, what Paul discerned is when we forget this, we argue, we divide it, and we feel entitled to do it. Something comes more than just people not getting along. There's something deep in our heart. Paul asked another question. He asked the question, was Paul crucified for you? And if I can rephrase it, I think I would ask it in this way. Do you think and do you live as if Jesus was the one crucified for you? Do you live as if Jesus was the one crucified for you? So when I say for you, it's to recognize if you're sane and not completely self-absorbed, you should be able to see people and circumstances all around you that make you feel grateful for their influence and their investment on your life. They come with some sort of sense of obligation. Some people have done things for you. So we should be able to see that. If you don't see that, that's when you become uh, so ungrateful. You should be able, I should be able to say a family member, a friend, a teacher, a coach, a co-worker, someone with influence. I don't know where I would be if it weren't for them. And maybe that is such an obligation where you'd say, I'd do anything for her. I'd do anything for him. If you knew what they had done for me, when we're talking like that, we're recognizing someone has done something valuable to us. The problem is if that person garners more allegiance in your life than Jesus. If we look to someone else as more of a source for good in my life than Jesus. So what Paul did, as he does many times in Scripture, is he draws our attention away from himself and he says, if you feel any indebtedness, if you feel any obligation, if you feel any joyful gratitude, it needs to be to Jesus because Paul wasn't crucified for you. Jesus was. He points us to the cross. I mean, he could have said... Didn't Jesus love you? Or is Paul the one who really loved? But he goes to the cross. Was Paul executed for you? No, Jesus was. The cross of Jesus is where Paul comes back again and again and again. Because it's the cross of Jesus, his death for our sins, that comes as a gift to us. When we sing about the old rugged cross, it's not sentimental to me. It's a recognition that the cross is what transforms us. The cross is what forgives us. The cross is what initiates our justification. The cross is what cleanses us. What, what, it's what washes us. It's what makes us new people. It's what restores us. Nothing else should compare to the effect this has on us. There's going to always be a tendency, even in church, to drift from the cross and say, we just need to do good things for people. And that's true. We ought to do lots of good things. We ought to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. We ought to do all of that. 
But we can't forget to remind ourselves we are people of the cross. We're cross people. Our story as Christians will always be about the cross. We'll never graduate from it. We'll never move on from it. We're people of the cross. Our story isn't, isn't first and foremost that we work really hard to become a better version of ourselves. No, it's the story of the cross where Jesus went there for us. There are lots of benefits uh, of kind of understanding yourself. So there's all sorts of ways we do this. There's personality tests and profiles that we take. There's the Enneagram. There's 23 and Me to find out a little bit more. Who am I? What, what am I like? And we dig it, 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 What's my ancestry? What's, what's my biology tell me? What, what does my personality tell me? And yet for Christians, I mean, all that may, may be valuable to us. For Christians, though, let us remember at the top of the list is we're people who've been shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. That's made the difference. That's what we identify with. We have a story, and it's a story actually of death. We're united to Jesus in his death. We're conformed to his death. Our lives will take on the form of a cross when we die to self. As a Christian, you'll either answer the call that Jesus himself gave to take up your cross, or you'll be disobedient. See, all of our life is going to be cross-shaped. Lord, have mercy on us. Jesus was crucified for us, but when we forget this, we argue, we divide, we look to another story. Like, I follow Paul. Paul says, I'm not crucified for you. And your life should be wrapped up in the one who did. Taste death for you. Another question. How's the structure of our faith? Do you think and live as if Jesus is your Lord. By that I mean, do you take on his identity and submit to his authority? So the way Paul framed the question was this, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So where do, where do I get this kind of connection of thinking and living as if Jesus is our Lord? It's because baptism is assuming the name of someone. We're baptized A moment ago, there were those that were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're given over to the one when we're baptized in his name. We're placed under his care and protection, under his authority. In some ways, baptism is almost, it's not exactly identical, but in some ways it's like an adoption ceremony where we take on his name and now we're identified with him. In some ways, it's almost like when a new recruit takes on a, a loyalty oath to the military in which they're pledging allegiance to defend the Constitution of the United States. So, so there's, there's imagery, but it's much more than just a, 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 a Christian ritual. It's much more than just something that Christians do, like a, you know, a family that would be really into music. It's a big day when so-and-so takes their first piano lessons. Or a family that's really into sports, when you get the little kid their first jersey, that's a big, big day. They're wearing the colors of the team. No, this, this, so much more is going on when we're baptized in the name of Jesus. This probably goes without saying, but when we say the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not like first, middle, and last name. But, but I think we ought to discipline ourselves to remind, okay, what does it mean when we say Jesus? It means that His name is, he is the Savior. What does it mean when we say he is the Lord? It's not just his first name. It means that he has absolute authority and dominion over our life. He is the Lord. 
We submit to him. We submit to his teachings. What does it mean when we say he's the Lord Jesus Christ? Christ is the Messiah, the, the one that was the high point of fulfillment of God's plan of rescue and re- restoration. The world literally revolves around him. That's what we're saying. And Paul says, you weren't baptized in my name. You don't take your orders from me. You're under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't diminish baptism. He elevates it by saying, whoever you're baptized in the name of that person. And and so he goes on. He says, I thank God I I didn't baptize uh, any of you. He he remembers one other person. And he says, beyond that, I I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Because Paul isn't about brand loyalty. It's not about trying to get a, a, a good number of followers. The point is Jesus. And he says, more than baptism, he says, for Christ didn't, verse 17, Christ didn't send me to baptize. To say, look, I baptized 100. I baptized 200 of the people in, in Corinth. Christ didn't send me to do that. But he sent me to preach the gospel. So how do you preach the gospel? Well, I do it with words, not with words of eloquent wisdom. I'm not trying to like have clever phrases. I don't want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. Paul says, I have a simple message, and I don't aim for clever or slick, high level of eloquence. That's not where the power of the gospel is. I have a simple message. And the simple message is that God is this loving ruler over all the world. He made us rulers to be under him. But we look at the world, and it doesn't look like this is a very good world, very perfect world. We see all sorts of things that are messed up. That's because we've rejected the ruler and we've tried to run life our own way. But we don't do a good job of it. We act like little gods. I'll rule my world. And we make a mess of it. And the result is a mess for us and for others. And that's not going to stand forever. Who would want that kind of a world to stand forever anyway? God won't let us rebel forever. God's punishment for this rebellion is sin. It's death. It's judgment. Which sounds really, really harsh, but because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man, Jesus Christ. And whereas we will, like, do God's will some of the time, he did it 100% of the time. He lived the life we should have lived, but we don't. And he died the death that we deserve to die. On the cross, he's taking our punishment on himself. And I know many of you have heard this message again and again, but Paul said, we're not going to make it more clever, more slick. And we're not going to improve on a simple message of the cross. You want to know what's powerful is that God raised Jesus to life as the ruler of the world, and he's conquered death, and he now gives new life, and one day he'll return to this earth as judge. And so that leaves us with, it definitely leaves us with a choice. We can live our way. We can, we can reject the ruler. We can reject God. We can try to run our life our own way, and the result will always be painful. We'll be condemned by God. We'll face death. We'll face judgment. But there is another way. It's the new way made possible because of Jesus Christ, and that is to submit to Jesus as our ruler to rely on, rely on what he did in his death and his resurrection for us. That's what every person that got baptized was saying. 
I'm buried just like Jesus in his death. And I'm raised to walk in a new life. We can either trust that and live, live that way. That's the power of the cross. That's what comes with the result of being forgiven by God, given eternal life, no longer rebel, part of God's family, adopted into his family as sons and daughters. That's the message we have to share. That's why we don't, we don't need to divide over this. We don't need to get into this camp or that camp. There's a message that's so much greater than that. And because of what Christ has done, when we say that message, that's powerful. That, that can change the lives of our coworkers. That can change the lives of our family members. That can change our own lives. That can deal with some of the stubborn sin that needs to be rooted out. That can deal with our feelings of shame and guilt. That can change us into a new creature. That message. So if you know, if you know that you've never put your faith in Jesus, what can you do? Well, here's where you can start. You can respond to that message in faith. Maybe praying a prayer, something like, God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I know that. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I know that. I know I'm guilty of rebelling against you. I know I'm guilty even of ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me, that I might be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me. Please help me to live my life with Jesus as my ruler. That, that could be the starting place. But while it's a starting place, we're, again, we're not going to graduate from that. We'll go deeper in it. And what we all will do, if we name the name of Jesus, we'll keep looking to the death of Jesus on the cross and say, that's, that's the ground for my forgiveness. That's what means I'm pardoned. And we will never, we will never stop relying on him and him alone. Church Paul looks just a little bit below the surface and he, he's not just going to tell me, I quit arguing. He's going to say, where, where are you focusing? How, how are you thinking and how are you living? I think the questions he asked them are the questions we need to answer today. I invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. Let me just take a moment to reflect. Our world's pretty noisy at times. We need time to think and process. Where is what I'm thinking and where, what, how I'm living? Where does that not line up with what I've heard? Maybe you need to confess, much like I did this week, the, the ways in which I seek to divide instead of realizing Christ has brought people together. Maybe, I need to, maybe you need to go back to the cross again and say, my life is wrapped up in what Jesus did for me. Maybe there are areas where our lives are not submitted to Jesus and his lordship. So, Father, I pray that you would take these words and plant them deep in us. And even as we move from this space, I pray that we will not be ashamed, embarrassed ever by the cross, that we will not trivialize it or marginalize it, but at the core of our life will be what you did for us there, making all the difference. I pray for those that have not yet met you, 
person that's exploring it, the person that has more questions, I pray they would know they could ask those questions. Give them Christian friends. Maybe they even talk to one of us afterwards. I pray that you would direct someone to them that will help them with questions, doubts, concerns, fears. Lord, we confess yours is the power of the kingdom, the glory forever and ever. Amen.